Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast with your hosts, Aaron Holtz and Kyle Mayorana. Aaron is a holistic nutritionist and yoga teacher on the seacoast of New Hampshire. Kyle is a registered dietitian in Asheville, North Carolina, and we are both studying functional nutrition. This means we work collaboratively with people to get to the root cause of their health issues. In this podcast, we will address all things health, wellness, food and nutrition, discussing our clinical experience, life experience, and what we're currently studying. We hope you enjoy it as much as we do. Please keep in mind our disclaimer, this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Hey guys, Erin here. Welcome back and thanks for joining us. I'm here with my homegirl, Kyle. Kyle, what's up with you this week? Um, I guess I will start with a little light housekeeping. So I've decided to go back to my maiden name and use this for business too. So instead of true, which was far too easy, I really missed vowels <laughs> and I'm going back to Mayorana. Um, easy pronunciation, mayo, like the condiment, Rana. Mayorana. What a foodie. I know. Um, so I also ended up changing my business name to, to Root Down Nutrition, which I think is funny because the initials are RDN, which is what I am, a registered dietitian nutritionist. Ayo! Um, <laughs> that is also my Instagram handle now. So picking out a business name can be hard and deciding whether or not to like use your name or create something new. Yeah, I know. I went through that. I think my original business name was Balanced Nutrition and yoga which is just like so generic mm -hmm. um and I don't even know how I ended up on what I have but I think it was just like well this way with my name I can kind of pick and choose some different things but I love 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 root down nutrition because it just it speaks to exactly what we're doing with functional nutrition it's getting to the root root cause of stuff so I think that's awesome I'm pumped Whew. okay well um yeah so that is out of the way uh, let's move on to a little self-care. Um, I managed to try infrared sauna for the first time, which was really cool. If you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about, I will explain. So it's a type of sauna that uses heat and light to help you sweat and detoxify your body because I think a lot of times we can exercise, but the sweating piece is what we're oftentimes missing. Yeah. So you can get all like the benefits that you'd normally get from the sun without having to worry about the skin damage or the cancer. Um, so some of the benefits of this type of sauna, detoxifying from heavy metals and environmental toxins, um, increasing blood circulation and oxygen supply to any damaged tissue. So this can be good for someone dealing with chronic joint or muscle pain, improving heart function, reducing blood pressure, immune system, anti-aging. It was really great. I did it for an hour, but... Wow, for a first time, um, I had to keep the door cracked open for a portion of it just so that I could get some fresh air and cool down. Um, 
I decided to do this because I did heavy metal testing earlier this year and found out that I had high levels of lead and mercury. So I've been on a six month detox program for that. And I also have a chronic low back injury from like 15 years ago. So I just gave it a try. I definitely felt better afterwards. And I got to catch up on some articles for school while I was in there because it is you're like, you're trapped in a box. It's it's pretty boring. By um, articles for school, do you mean U.S. Weekly articles? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I just want to say that, like, yeah, the Royals are just so interesting to keep <laughs> up with. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I don't either. I mean, you know, like the royal family. Oh, not like yeah. the royal Kardashians? Yeah, come on, Erin. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I did catch up on some stuff. I went to Blazing Lotus Healing House in Asheville. It was only 40 bucks for an hour, so I thought it was well worth it. And that's my story. What's new with you? Well, I'm super jealous of that. So wait, infrared sauna is different than like a, a regular sauna that you would see at like a health club because... Because the, the light. infrared light, so you're, it's like everything is orange and, and kind of like fluorescent. Yeah. It's, okay. You don't have to wear like eye gear or anything, but it's definitely different than just a regular hot room. Okay. I yeah. think I've done this before at a place called Thrive in Exeter. It's a woman's gym um, because it had different lights and you could choose like different lights based on what you were going for. So I don't Did know if you choose the, the strobe light. <laughs> Party time. Um, I don't know if it was like joint pain, like headache. You could like choose it based on your major malfunction. Oh, I was like, can I have them cool. all, please? I'm going to need them all. <laughs> um, so anyway, I've I really want to try that out for sure. But I don't know if there is yeah. a place around here. So if anybody's listening, if is anybody listening? Hello. <laughs> is this thing is it just me and Kyle? It might be. Um, <laughs> please let me know if there's one in the area, in the New Hampshire seacoast area, because I would like to check that out. I actually looked into, you can buy them for your house. They're called near infrared pocket, pocket saunas, I think. And so I looked into that, but they're like two grand. And wow. while I was doing my Google search, I also stumbled across a how-to video on how to like make them yourself. Oh my God. In like the raw materials were maybe like 100 150 bucks so i i seriously wow. considered that i might i can just see the, the look on scott's face when he comes home and i'm like crafting a sauna in our, like, one of our closets <laughs> yeah just like look like away a, don't even don't tin even worry foil about hat it. nothing's going on <laughs> everything's fine <laughs> um i've personally been doing a little bit of sweating myself lately uh, i've been practicing a lot of bikram yoga we just kicked off our commit to 90 program so i partnered up with Bikram Yoga in Portsmouth and Epping. These are both New Hampshire. And we started a uh, three-month program for people to totally overhaul their life. And I offer up the nutrition component. So pretty jazzed about that. And during the orientation meeting, people were talking. We were all just talking about yoga and this practice. And I was totally re-inspired and reminded about how much it's done for me. So I've been in the hot room quite a bit, sweating it all out lately. And I feel really good. Yeah, I remember when we were in school together and you were um, dealing with a back injury and you were doing Bikram all the time. So people might be curious why you say Bikram has done a lot for you. So what do you mean by that? 
Well, like just what you said, that was my first foray into Bikram was was healing a, a back injury. I had a slipped disc. I don't even remember something in my low back. And so I did it a lot for that, which was super helpful. And then more recently, a couple years ago, when I got diagnosed with scleroderma, I was having a ton of joint pain. This is actually what sent me into the doctor's office in the first place. And my biggest complaints were my upper body. So shoulders, elbows, wrists, hands. And at the time I was teaching and practicing vinyasa yoga. So that involves a lot of weight bearing activities on the upper extremities, basically all the things I just mentioned. So it was wicked tough for me with the joint pain because I would feel worse after class rather than better. So eventually I just had to give up my beloved vinyasa, which honestly was really tough for me mentally because this practice, the vinyasa was super important in my recovery and getting comfortable in my own skin. When I'm talking about my recovery, I'm talking about my eating disorder stuff. Um, but fortunately I was able to replace it with Bikram, which is hot yoga. It's the same 26 postures for somebody who's listening that doesn't know. And there's no upper body weight bearing in that style. So it's a lot more appropriate for my particular body. And the reason that I'm bringing all of this up is that if anyone listening is struggles with wrist pain or shoulder pain, because that's a really, really common complaint in a vinyasa practice, then try out a different style of yoga because Brickham could be an awesome option for you. And last week, Kyle, you talked about yin yoga and that's not nearly as athletic, but it's still a yoga practice. So there's definitely a practice out there for you. I always hear people say, oh, I can't do yoga because X, Y, and Z. But I think there's a yoga out there for everybody. So keep going until you find the the style that works for your body. Um and on top of the physical practice, I really think that the sweating was super helpful in in my healing journey with the autoimmune stuff. Because as you pointed out, Kyle, sweating is such a necessary part of detoxification. It's one of the ways that our bodies move stuff out. And we really don't get much sweating in our day-to-day -day life. Even with exercise, it's not like a significant amount of sweat in a lot of cases. So when there's some type of chronic health issue, supporting detoxification can be really helpful. Um, and just as a little aside here, if you're interested in learning more about detox, I do have a detox guide on my website. You can go to erinholtshealth.com forward slash products and find it there. But this is really for like more like general upkeep. Um, it's not like Kyle mentioned, she's detoxing detoxing from heavy metals and she's doing that under the care of a practitioner it's really really important to get tested and knowing what know what you're dealing with when you're when you're do, working with something like that um just like an like going on a juice cleanse isn't going to cut it so keep that in mind um and then lastly and then i'll shut up i want to point out too that outside of the exercise movement and the exercise the movement component and all the mind benefits of yoga the community piece is so huge for me and this is something that I, I'm just sort of starting to see in the past couple of months I can be having a really tough day and I go to a yoga class and I, then I get to feed off the energy of the room it's so awesome there's this one teacher Andy and she's such a firecracker I just laugh the whole 90 minutes of class um, and I think that's something that we sort of forget about or even overlook especially me I work for myself and I'm a stay-at-home mom so I can get really pent up and isolated I have to like force myself to get out there and mix it up with people and yoga is definitely part of my self-care but I think the community vibe is like hugely healing too I like that feed off the energy in the room that's a good way of putting it um 
I couldn't agree more about the community piece. It had been a really, really long time since I had been to a yoga studio. I wake up and work out in my living room. Otherwise, I blow it off. So I am totally working out at home, which is 100% isolating. So when I recently started going to classes again, the biggest thing I felt afterwards wasn't, wow, that was, you know, a great workout, which it was, but it was more just, it felt so good to just be in a room with a bunch of other people again. Yeah, I I totally hear you. I'm like, is it the yoga? Is it the sweating? Is it the laughing? Or is it just like the vibe? Like, yeah, the vibe. Um, All right, cool. So This week, we're going to answer a listener question. Before we started recording, we actually reached out to people on social media and through my newsletter. By the way, sign up for that if you haven't yet already. It's on my website. And we got a lot of questions. So that's pretty awesome. We know what people are looking for. And keep in mind that this podcast is really all about responding to the questions that you have. So please feel free to reach out with anything you want addressed on the show. You can contact us directly through our social media channels. So I'm Erin Holt Health and Kyle is Root Down Nutrition on Instagram. And you can also fill out the contact form on my website, erinholthealth.com. All right, let's get into it. So today's question is from Emily in Hampton, New Hampshire. Talk to me about cooking with ghee and coconut oil. This is probably a dumb question, but I remember Erin saying in her Fueled and Fit program not to let the oil smoke while cooking. Why? I now use coconut oil in place of butter because I had to give up dairy while breastfeeding. But why can some people who are sensitive to dairy still eat ghee? When do you use ghee and when do you use coconut oil? Also, how do you save fat from meat and use it to cook your veggies and other things? I've heard this before and want to know how and why. Okay, so first of all, the Fueled and Fit program Emily mentioned is my 21-day online nutrition and lifestyle program. And I definitely spend some time chatting about fats in that program because I think confusion about fats and misinformation about fats and poor quality fats in our food system is one of the biggest food issues we face today. I'm actually running my next program starting Monday, October 16th. So check out my website if you want to grab more info on that. I love your program. I've done it, I don't even know, two or three times so far, but... Um, yeah, so it's definitely so great. Um, but these are really good questions. And I think this question in particular is something that a lot of people want to hear the answer to and just finally be able to make some sense out of. All right, so let's dive in. We'll start off with talking about ghee because not everybody knows what that is. Ghee is clarified butter where the milk solids have been removed. It's a traditional Ayurvedic food. I am not an expert on Ayurveda. In fact, it makes me really um, stressed out to even say the word because I always feel like I'm butchering it. (laughs) I don't know if I'm saying it right. Um, So I'm not going to speak too much to that, but I just want people to know that it's been eaten as part of traditional Indian culture forever, and it's known to have some healing properties. Now, people who may be sensitive to dairy can get away with eating ghee, both Kyle and myself included, because most ghee is free of casein and lactose. When you remove the milk solids, you remove both the casein and the lactose. Casein is a protein in milk and lactose is a milk sugar. And people can react poorly to one or both of them. This is actually something that's often misunderstood. People assume that there's if there's an issue with dairy, then it's 
always a lactose intolerance. So they can drink lactose-free milk or eat hard cheeses with lower lactose. And now this might be true for some people, but others really respond to the actual proteins in dairy. Now, if you are sensitive to dairy and you want to try out ghee, be sure to buy a ghee that is certified casein and lactose-free and always buy grass-fed because it's going to contain the highest nutrition without the garbage of conventional dairy. Tin Star Foods, Pure Indian Foods, Fourth and Heart, these are all um, brands that I really like. Uh, Fourth and Heart makes a Madagascar vanilla bean that is like TDF. Um, that's to die for. And it's really, really good. <laughs> it's yeah. so good. Um, Organic Valley is another one that you can find in most markets if you don't if you don't um, order off of Amazon. If you're a, a local psychopath one. and don't order off. <laughs> That's like no one. Um, a local one in Asheville is Goddess Ghee, I think is the name of the company. And she, oh my, oh my Lord, her stuff is, she does a dark chocolate one. She does a vanilla honey one. She does a regular Whoa. traditional. She just um, is doing a local collaboration with Blue Ridge Hemp to do some CBD oil ghee. So that's, that's my oh local little Oh my God, that's so tidbit. cool. I know. I'm so jealous of you down there in Hippieville. <laughs> Um, all right. So why would you use ghee? Number one, it's nutritious. Ghee from grass-fed dairy contains fat-soluble vitamins A, D, E, and K2. It's also a source of conjugated linoleic acid, CLA, and butyric acid, which is a support for the gut lining. We'll be talking a lot more about dairy in episode four. So meh, maybe episode five. I don't know. We're, we're pre-recording oh, yeah. here, so. In an upcoming episode, we'll be talking a lot more about dairy. <laughs> so be sure to check that out if you're interested in hearing more. Okay. Um, also, ghee holds up really well to high heat. Lactose and casein can oxidize at high heat. So because these are removed from the ghee, it's a really safe cooking fat. And I'm going to explain what all of that means in a little bit. So Kyle, first, do you use ghee? And if so, what do you use it for? I'm asking Kyle because she's like a crazy cook. She cooks all the time. Yeah, coming from Chef Boyardee herself. Um, yeah, I. <laughs> what I a use compliment! Ghee. I know. I know. I, I should have done like Julia Child. I'm not sure why Chef Boyardee <laughs> came to mind. I apologize. I was far from a compliment. Um, I use ghee. <laughs> You're just a fat old man. Um, I use ghee anytime I'm looking for a, that kind of like buttery flavor. So fish, seafood, sweet potatoes. Um, the occasional bulletproof coffee, veggies, eggs, the usual. What about you? Yeah, pretty much all of that. I love them on eggs. I make salmon patties, the the recipes on my website, crispy salmon cakes, and I loved cooking those in ghee, uh, pan frying them. I'll do a lot of blended soups and I'll just like throw in. So I'll steam veggies or uh, roast veggies and then put them in the blender with a little bit of like bone broth. And then I'll put a couple scoops of ghee into it makes it really creamy. Um, Alfredo sauce with cauliflower. Obviously, I put a ton of ghee in that. And then I also make fuel bites, another recipe on my website. Um, and I use ghee for those. So basically everything you said. Plus, plus Still trying some. to get over just calling you Chef Boyardee, but oh. we'll move past that. Um, I'll make it up to you. I so do love Emily my, canned, also... my canned ravioli. <laughs> yeah, totally. Mm. Talk, all the BPA. Um, Emily also asked about coconut oil, which we both use. I like coconut oil for most of the same things that we use ghee for. Um, it just really depends on the seasoning I'm using. 
and what kind of flavor I want the cooking fat to have or not have. So coconut oil has been a bit of a hot topic lately, although it seems like, yeah, it's always a hot topic. Very, very hot topic. Um, We actually chose this particular episode because, or this question rather, because we wanted to address the article from USA Today this past June, coconut oil isn't healthy, it's never been healthy. So Erin, try to try to keep this PG. Let's hear your thoughts on that. I'm like bashing my skull into the wall. Um, First of all, you said hot topic like 87 times. (laughs) Oh my God. And it, is that still a store in the mall? It's got to be. I definitely used to shop there and got my manic panic hair dye. What (laughs) up? All right. So if you haven't heard of it, so quite a few um, media publications, it wasn't just USA Today, but like a bunch of them picked this up. So if you haven't heard about it, it's basically an American Heart Association. I'm going to call that AHA moving forward. um, Advisory telling people to replace saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat, like vegetable oils, in order to reduce the risk for cardiovascular disease. And this is not new stuff, you guys. It's the same stuff we've been hearing for decades. And they're not specifically calling out coconut oil. It's simply an extrapolation of the saturated fat is bad conversation because coconut oil contains saturated fat. And right now, coconut oil is very trendy. I think their stat is 73% of Americans view coconut oil as healthy. So I think that's why it was falling on the sword in the recent media frenzy. Now, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in the United States and even globally. So it's important to do this work. I'm not not knocking that. I'm not discrediting them. However, we do have to question the validity of two things here. One is AHA funding, where they get their monies, and two, issues with nutrition data. The heart check label is something that AHA puts on certain foods that meet a certain set of criteria. This heart check label costs money, and who can afford this label? Well, big food. It's not the companies like Kyle's talking about, like the little grassroots companies that are doing the right thing. It's big It's big food. The American Heart Association is a nonprofit, so of course they need to make money for their research. But when you see this label on heavily processed, high sugar foods, you really have to wonder what the heck is going on here. Also, When it comes to nutrition research, it's not always hard and fast data. For example, the more recent stuff coming out from AHA is based on a meta-analysis, which combines data from multiple studies to come up with one main conclusion. So it's a really good, it's a really good analysis. The downside is that you can check, cherry pick what studies you use. In studies that support your theory, you're obviously going to choose those. And this really happens a lot. So it doesn't always give us an objective look at what the actual facts are because companies that want to promote something are going to pick the studies that promote it. Uh, Hopefully that makes sense. Now, on top of this, much of our nutrition information and how it relates to human health is based on dietary recall. This means that people have to report what they ate, sometimes dating back 
years, which is kind of crazy because as a nutritionist, when I have my clients do a dietary recall for three days, they often have a hard time remembering what they ate. And I mean, if you think back to just yesterday or two days ago, can you remember every single thing you ate? Probably not. Yet we're asking people to think back days, weeks, months, even years. And this is what we're basing research off of. So point being, it's not the most reliable. Another thing, you can see how this gets complex, um, dietary studies often fail to address context. So for example, a study looking at saturated fat, is that fat within the context of a whole food diet or a heavily processed diet? You better believe that matters. Saturated fat within the framework of the standard American diet with lots of sugar and refined carbohydrates, which most of these studies are done on, will affect health differently than within the context of a real whole food ancestral diet with lots of fiber and lots of plant matter. All right, finally, this is the last thing I'll say about it. It's very hard to control for variables in dietary studies. You might be looking at someone's diet, but what about smoking or exercise or how they're living their lives outside of just what they're eating? Now, of course, all of that's going to impact their health outcome, not just what they're putting in their mouth. And when you're using human subjects living their lives out there in the, the great big world, you can't control for all the variables and all the moving parts of their lives. So anyway, these articles that came out a few months ago were the same saturated fat is bad rhetoric that we've heard for many, many years. And when we hear good fat versus bad fat, for the most part, the average American consumer thinks that bad fat refers to saturated fat. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree with that, Kyle? Would you say that's correct? Yeah, I would agree with that. But unfortunately, it, it doesn't even just end with the average consumer who thinks that because plenty of trained educators and experts do too. So for example, we use handouts in the hospital to give to patients who need to be educated on diet and lifestyle changes. This also happens in the outpatient setting. One of the most popular ways of doing this is to use the nutrition care manual by created by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. So this is a database of like a hundred different topics of created written material for. It has calculators and some other good resources. It's a helpful site and I use it all the time for their calculators um, and for nutrition education, some. But when you look more closely at the actual messages being given to patients, that's where it starts to get a bit sketchy. So, for example, when you think of fat and diet, you might choose their heart-healthy handout. Well, what's recommended? Canola and soybean oils. It also says to eat more soy foods for protein. They recommend replacing butter with reduced fat, whipped, or liquid spreads. Which, Ew! Yeah, I'm just going to leave that there. Um, these are almost always made with soybean and canola oils, and they oftentimes will have trans fats, which are called partially hydrogenated oils in the ingredients. But the packages can still say trans fat free, as long as they have less than a half a gram of trans fat per serving. So the question here is, well, how many of you are only eating one serving of something? And what happens in your body when you're consuming these half gram amounts of trans fat on a regular or even a daily basis. Yeah, most of us know that trans fats are bad fats. I mean, there's been enough media around that that I'd say that most of us can pinpoint that. 
For those of you who don't know, trans fats are man-made fats. They do not occur anywhere in nature. They are absolutely linked to cardiovascular disease amongst other health problems. In fact, the uh, World Health Organization recommends the elimination of trans fats from our food altogether. And I think because we're they're so widely known and accepted to be harmful to health that we just assume that they're not in our food system anymore because that would make sense. But as recently as 2015, the EWG, the Environmental Working Group, found that over a third of packaged foods in a grocery store contain trans fats. That's a lot. Over a third, that's that's a real lot. I'm trying not to swear right now. All the more reason to avoid <laughs> all the more reason to avoid processed and packaged foods. So the the heavy hitters, the worst offenders were breakfast sandwiches, frozen pies and desserts, ready to eat foods, canned soups and canned meats, which ill. <laughs> but people are eating this stuff like a lot. So to Kyle, to your point, fractions of a gram can quickly add up to a significant amount. It's like a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there. It adds up. Anytime you see partially hydrogenated anything on a label, absolutely 100% do not eat that product. Yeah, absolutely. And to add, the diet handouts are... Um to add to the handout that the AND, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, that they create, what about the My Plate method, which replaced the old food pyramid? And again, the list of their healthy options for fat are what they call vegetable oils. And this includes canola, corn, cottonseed, olive, peanut, safflower, soybean, and sunflower. So a lot of different options here. I literally can't even <laughs> cotton seed I don't even um <laughs> foods that use these oils are margarines mayo salad dressings nut butters the list goes on and on you'll be shocked once you actually start reading the labels looking for these things so whenever you think processed or packaged foods you should be looking for these oils and the dietary guidelines for Americans recommend the same oils used in place of butter and coconut oil for example good so, good call on the the um the nut butters because it's like a lot of us know like okay margarine not so great but nut butters you wouldn't think that they would hide sketch oils and nut butters i know but they do i know um so the most important takeaway here is where do you think the academy of nutrition and dietetics my plate and the dietary guidelines for americans all come from the usda so this p next part is is the money the USDA has two missions, and these are not, this isn't like top secret stuff. The first mission is to serve the health of the public. The second mission is to maximize the economic growth and profit for the agricultural sector of the U.S. economy. If that is not a conflict of interest, I don't know what is. Why is profit and growth listed anywhere near the health of the general public? This is why messages get so skewed because they're never 100% about the consumer's health. They always are about money too. So dietitians have grown so frustrated with the academy that a group was started called Dietitians for Professional Integrity. And they believe that sponsorship affects the public's perception of dietitians. And believe me, they do because I have already heard it. The public deserves nutrition information that isn't tainted by food industry interests and that the academy should pu prioritize public health instead of empowering and enabling big food. 
So just like we said in the last episode about not all health coaches and nutritionists being created equal, the same goes for dietitians. And there are some of us out there really fighting the good fight, not just following whatever the academy or the USDA is recommending. So there's so much to say about this topic that we will end up doing an episode all about cholesterol, understanding your lipid panel. We'll talk about statins and more about where this fear of cholesterol came from in the first place. It's really such Oof. a huge, yeah, it's such a huge topic <laughs> that, I mean, it's just, I don't know, you like pull a string and you begin to unravel the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. And Honestly, I don't mean to be so outwardly dismissive of the USDA's recommendations. It's just that when my plate blatantly calls out vegetable oils as a healthy fat option, I just I just can't. I like shut down. First of all, they're not even vegetable oils. Canola or rapeseed, which is its original name. Ooh. <laughs> Marketing is... department was like, uh, this one's an easy one, guys. <laughs> Let's call it something else. It's not a vegetable. Corn, not a vegetable. Cotton, not a vegetable. Soy, still not a veggie. So let's just call them what they are. Industry refined oils. Let me explain why these are not good to consume. And this is also going to help to answer some of Emily's questions. Now, I do have to get into chemistry for one hot minute and then I'll move on, but it's absolutely fundamental to this discussion. So we can't overlook it. If you want to close your eyes and just <laughs> check out for a second, go for it. Um, saturated fats are stable fats, it comes down to their chemistry. Saturated fatty acids are completely packed or saturated with hydrogen atoms. This leaves no room for double bonds. Double bonds are highly reactive, so without them, saturated fats are stable fats. This is why saturated fats like coconut oil and ghee make good cooking fats because the stability allows them to hold up well to heat. Saturated fats are the ones that are typically solid at room temperature, so you can find them in animal fats like lard, tallow, butter, ghee, and tropical oils like palm and coconut oil that we've been talking about. Now back to those double bonds, and then I promise to shut up with the chemistry. I said that double bonds are reactive. So the more double bonds a fat has, the more reactive it is, and therefore the less stable it is. And I keep saying these words because stability and reactivity are super important when considering food for human health. Now, monounsaturated fats have one double bond. Mono equals one. So they're slightly less stable than a saturated fat. Polyunsaturated fats have the most double bonds. Poly equals many. So they are the most reactive of the fats. Because polyunsaturated fats are highly unstable, they are damaged easily when exposed to heat, light, or air. When this happens, these fats can oxidize or go rancid, and they produce free radicals in your body upon cons uh, consumption. Now, this puts us in a very pro-inflammatory state, and inflammation is the driver of all disease, especially cardiovascular disease. So to answer one of Emily's questions, we don't want our cooking fats to smoke because this means it has started to oxidize and we really don't want to consume oxidized fats. All right. If I've lost you, this is where I want you to check back in and start to pay attention again. The fats that the USDA and the American Heart Association recommend, those refined vegetable and seed oils, they're polyunsaturated fats, specifically of the omega-6 variety. 
because these oils are so processed, they have many, many opportunities to be exposed to heat, light, and air during processing. Remember that this exposure can cause the oils to oxidize, which is bad, 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 bad. So they're heavily processed, typically using a chemical solvent. Then they're shipped to the store where they stay for who knows how long. Then they get to your cupboard to sit for a little bit longer. And then we cook with them. So the point being, by the time we actually consume these oils, they are damaged fats and they are not fit for us to consume. So what are the best fats to use? For heating and cooking, those are going to be the ones that are more stable, saturated fats. So coconut oil is actually a really healthy option for this because it's saturated and it's heat stable. Coconut oil is also unique in the type of fats it contains, medium chain triglycerides or MCTs. These fats don't need pancreatic enzymes to be digested, so they're actually available for immediate energy. And keep in mind that coconut oil is also a traditional fat used throughout the tropics for like ever. Um, it's been studied for brain health, cognition, immune support, metabolism. So I truly, truly wouldn't worry about consuming coconut oil. Other good cooking fats include palm oil, ghee, and even reserved lard or tallow from cooking animals. Grass-fed butter is good for lower temps, and monounsaturated fats like olive oil and avocado oil are okay for cooking as long as you keep it to below 350 degrees. Now, Kyle, do you have any thoughts on this? What do you cook with? Any of these oils? Give us the deets. Um, I probably use avocado oil more than coconut oil because the flavor of coconut oil isn't something that I want sometimes. Sometimes I love it. Sometimes it's not what I'm looking for. And I will admit that personally, I find it a little annoying sometimes to have to melt the solid oils just to coat whatever it is I'm making. So like if it's in the winter, it's solid. Um, so in the summer, I end up using coconut oil more than in the winter just for that one lazy aspect. Um, <laughs> well, you don't he, use, we don't use microwave. So it's not as simple as like popping it in a microwave to melt yeah. it. So well, I, that's, that's I feel the that. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, like you said, keep in mind how stable the oil is to begin with. And this is going to play a role in the stability it's going to have once it's uh, refined and being used in high heat, which is why the nasty so-called vegetable oils we mentioned are so bad because they're already super processed and unstable to begin with. You add them to high heat, they become totally unstable and damaged, not things that you want in your body. So... Also, try to pay attention to whether things are refined or unrefined um, and just try to have a bit more variety. So if they're refined, you can um, typically be a little bit of a higher temperature uh, for their smoke point than unrefined. Um, but the point is, is that, you know, if you aren't using the most ideal oil at the perfect temperature, the, as long as you're not doing something like this day in and day out, it's fine. Just have variety. Yes. So, so true. Um, the refinement process often involves a lot of chemicals. So refined oils have chemical residues and less nutrition. 
which is why we don't like really recommend them across the board. Like something like olive oil requires very little processing. There's no need for chemicals. And the same thing with coconut oil, unrefined coconut oil. It's also called virgin coconut oil. Um, it's made by shredding and then cold pressing fresh coconut, fermenting it, and then gently heating it to remove moisture. So it's a pretty straightforward process. Another kind is expeller pressed, which is often deodorized. Now this might be a good bet for someone like Kyle who doesn't always want that coconut flavor flavor but do keep in mind that when you remove those aromatic compounds it impacts the the health benefit of the oils. So I typically love to buy cold pressed unrefined oils. That's usually what I go for whether it's coconut oil or olive oil or whatever. But I do think that Kyle brought up a good point. You just have to do what you feel comfortable with with you know the give given the information you have there we go um we don't have to be super dogmatic about food with with hard and fast rules i think the take home message here and really the whole the whole point of this discussion is that saturated fat from proper soy sources is fine and monounsaturated fats like extra virgin olive oil and avocado oil are another great option for health especially for lower temperatures and cold purposes but polyunsaturated fats should never be used for cooking due to their instability and their reactivity. And we should reduce, if not completely eliminate, our use of refined seed oils, those industry vegetable oils. They're extremely high in omega-6 fats. They contribute to the imbalance of fatty acids that we already have within our typical diet. And this sets the stage for inflammation. So let's tackle Emily's last question since reserved animal fats are a stable fat to cook with, how do you save fat from meat to use for cooking? Kyle? I don't do this. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't like using lard or any leftover animal fat for cooking. I started eating meat again like a, a year, year and a half ago, and I totally appreciate and love the concept of using it rather than throwing it out. It's just not a flavor that I tend to crave when I'm cooking. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same camp there. I was a vegetarian for 20 years, and I've been eating meat now for three-ish. Um, and I still just, I don't know. I, I don't love it. But for those people that are looking for more information, keep in mind that we're really only referring to properly raised, properly fed, healthy animals when we're talking about this. Animals, just like humans, store their toxins in their fat. So if you're buying like bacon from the grocery store, just like generic, I don't know, Oscar Mayer, I don't even know the brands, just like generic bacon, you wouldn't want to reserve that cooking fat because it's not going to be it's not going to be healthy but animal fats uh, from properly properly raised animals are going to contain fat soluble vitamins like a d k um, and they do offer up some health benefits and really truly eating the animal top to tail is a very sustainable approach to meat eating if you think about it what we tend to do is eat the muscle meat so if you're eating chicken what are you eating you're probably eating chicken breast maybe chicken thighs but it's like well what the heck happens to the rest of the animal what about the skin what about the bones what about the ligaments and the other tissues so the best way to to stick with the the chicken the best way to eat chicken and and i say best for overall health and for the health of our environment is to eat all the meat, but also take the bones and make a bone broth with it and reserve the fat either from the bone broth or just eat the, the skin itself um, for cooking. 
So that's kind of what that is all about. Um, if you're cooking beef, um, strain off the fat and reserve it so you can just put it in a glass container and um, keep it. I like to keep it in the fridge um, just because I feel a little bit better about that. Um, same thing with pork. I mean, really any any fat. If there's runoff, you can put in a glass jar and save it and then use that to cook up some eggs or some like I was talking about those salmon patties or to, to roast up some veggies or something. Um, and also one more thing that I do want to add is that it, it gives us a, a more balanced um, approach to nutrition when we're eating the whole animal. Because like I said, with those muscle meats, we're only getting a certain amount of nutrition. But we when we eat the entire animal, we're getting a much more complex and robust nutrition profile. And I really think here that the whole fat thing – perfectly sums up the state of affairs of our food attitude. We think that highly refined and processed food made in a factory, foodstuffs that have just come on the scene in the last like what 100 years are healthy and superior to real natural fats that humans have been eating forever. I mean, that's weird, right? That's 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 weird when you hear it said out loud. But yet that's the belief that we all subscribe to. And we have this collective attitude that food additives and anything given to us by the food industry is innocent until proven guilty, even down to herbicides used on our food. And yet we seem to have the exact opposite attitude toward traditional foods. They're guilty until proven innocent. It just seems ass backwards to me. So We've established that well-sourced, whole food, saturated fats are fine to eat, but how do you feel, Kyle, about the whole add fat to everything craze that's going on right now, whether it's bulletproof coffee or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I think anything you can overdo. Um, I tried the bulletproof coffee a while ago, but... I don't, coffee and I don't always agree. And there were a couple times where I made the bulletproof coffee um, and I get a stomach ache from it. I think it was because I did it on an empty stomach. But for those of you who have no idea what bulletproof coffee is, it's coffee, MCT oil, and grass fed ghee. So I would add vanilla extract to mine too. But you have to mix it in a blender, have to. Um, and by doing that, it ends up creating this kind of creamy coffee as if you put cream in it. Um, you could Google it if you wanted to find out more info. So I use um, MCT oil in my smoothies because I think it's important to have fat and protein in your smoothie so that it's not just carbs and fruit um, and just veggies um, so that you're staying fuller longer. And for me, I found that it's cheaper for me to oil, um, order MCT oil from Amazon than it is to, you know, have this never ending supply of avocados to put in my smoothies. So especially right now, because avocados are $1 million. Especially. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I've been blending coconut oil into my coffee for, well, since I had Hattie, because I had to give up dairy and soy, and I used to use soy milk back in the day. Um, and I love it. And But you're so right. I've told people to do it, and they're like, it's kind of gross. There's just like an oil slick on the top of the coffee. It's like you Ugh. have to blend it up. Have to. <laughs> um, and I am certainly not fat phobic. I eat a pretty darn high fat diet, and I've even tinkered around with the keto excuse me, ketogenic way of eating. But the issue that I see is that someone reads an article about MCT oil or coconut oil and they're like, this is the key to weight loss. And then they start dumping tablespoons of it into their morning mm -hmm. coffee without changing anything else. It's like 
that's not the that's not the magic bullet. But people are doing this thinking they're like super duper healthy, right? People just want this this magic bullet without having to change their diet or change their lifestyle, which is way harder to do. But honestly, just adding a bunch of fat isn't really doing you any favors unless you're under eating fat to begin with. So that's sort of that. Do you have anything else you want to add? I think that just about covers it. This was a good episode. Great questions. Um, so everyone needs to keep keep those coming. Yes, yeah, send them on in. Thanks for listening, you guys. And we'll catch up with you soon. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question for Aaron and Kyle to tackle, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for us in iTunes. Take care of you. What's that?